Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, right alongside none other than John Tesh. How are you, John? I'm great. I'm actually getting credit for all your great interviews. It's really cool. People come and tell me how much they like the podcast, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Gib's uh, wingman. I'm, go- I'm, I'm Goose on the uh, podcast, for those of you yeah. who know what I'm talking about. That is a Top Gun reference. It's not, not, not a subtle one either. Hey, um, uh, our guest today is actually one that we've been trying for for a very long time. It's Cal Newport. Now, you and I have both read Deep Work, uh, which is a great book about how, you, how we in our modern society, how distracted we are and how bad we are at doing the kind of deep thinking and work that, that used to come natural to, to our predecessors. But now we, uh, we do a lot of superficial moving paper around kind of work. We don't do any deep work. That's a great book. You and I love that. Uh, but he's got a new book called Digital Minimalism. And we are going to talk today, you guys are going to hear all about this concept of digital minimalism, why we need it, why we need it, how our smartphones have taken over our lives. We even go into how the original iPhone was designed versus how it's being treated right now and, the, and how Facebook was originally pitched to us. You know, when, when, when Facebook sure, was getting going, yeah. it, was, it was profiles. You just had a profile. Now yeah. it's news feeds and, and um, behavioral psychologists have programmed Facebook's system in order to make us more likely to keep checking it in order to get those dopamine rushes. So they are literally taking over our brains and we're letting them. And so he's going to give us some really con- some concrete reasons why, how that's happening, why that's happening, and also how we can start to combat that. This is maybe the most important single interview that we've done so far just because it affects so many of us. Well, and you know, what I, what I like about Cal is that, you know, when we first started doing pieces like, you know, oh, you're spending six hours, you're spending 12 hours, you gotta, it's, not, it's, not, it's bad for you, right? Uh, and you're like, but people are still like, yeah, I know, but I'm going to still do it because right. it's what, what I want to do. But the great thing about Cal is, is he also tells you, uh, and he's done this in, in, even in deep work, here's how your life is going to improve. Not like, not like, you know, uh, 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 gloom and doom, gloom and doom, gloom and doom, your you know, life. Right. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's more like, here's how much more you can accomplish. Well, you're going to get your life back. And yeah. look, Cal yeah, is yeah. not a Luddite. Yeah. He, is, he is a computer science PhD from MIT. He is a computer science professor at Georgetown. He is a very real proponent of technology. He just thinks that we are, we are now the tools of technology. Technology is not our tool anymore. Right, and his point also is, and, and even in um, uh, Obstacle is the Way, with the, or, or Perennial Seller with Ryan Holiday, who's a friend of Cal's, you know, they both talk about the fact that, okay, when you get to the end of your life, what do you want to have left behind? Right. Anything? A lot of tweets. Because, because anybody can do deep work in any area. Right. You know, it really spoke to me because a lot of times I just let little stuff, you know, consume me, and, and I'm in the middle of trying to write a book right now. So it's like you, you actually have to, and you don't have to do it all day. You just got to carve out a time, right? When when you're going to do deep work. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I what I'm thinking is, and I can't wait to hear this interview. Is that is that if you get to uh, if, if you become successful at minimizing your digital life, mm-hmm. then you'll be able to do deep work, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and not just deep work. You'll be more present for your children, more present for your spouse. You'll just you'll be more in the moment, and you won't be controlled by these things. And and you're going to find that you find joy in things that you used to find joy in that you just don't even do anymore. We say we don't have time for it. We say we're too busy to yeah, go paddleboarding yeah. or hiking or whatever. Yeah. But we make ourselves unbusy. And now, we, now I'm going to give away the whole interview. Listen to the interview. But we make ourselves you know, uh, seem busy by, by messing around on the internet on our phones when we're really not. Well, you know, and it's connected to everything. You know, th- this whole thing about being t- so busy and, and not having any time, it actually, before we get to this interview... It's actually uh, reached the uh, reached Memphis, Tennessee, and, and a, a state representative who says that uh, parents and uh, grandparents are showing up, uh, uh, dumping their kids off from you know to, for school, uh, in, and picking them up in carpool, and they're not they don't have any clothes on. Basically, <laughs> the parents, the kids are the, fine. Yeah, the kids are fine, but they're, they're the parents are showing up in skimpy PJs and lingerie and wearing clothing, quote-unquote, with inappropriate sayings. Yeah. And so he actually, the uh, representative, is he wants to pass a law <laughs> saying, you know, with rules in, uh, in, in Tennessee, in Memphis, is a local representative, you know, saying that there, there have to be rules for the parents, otherwise they're going to be they're embarrassing their own kids. Well, we shouldn't have to have. Parents don't need dress codes because parents are supposed to be the grown-ups. And, and I know that we no longer live in an era where you, where you put on a suit to go to the grocery store as a guy or, you know, whatever the equivalent is, you, you know, a, a house with a, or a, a dress with a petticoat to leave the house if, you, if, if you're a woman. 
we're, we don't live in that era anymore. I absolutely, I think, I think that's a good thing. But I believe we've done a little bit of a casual overcorrection. We've gone from hyper-formal in every instance to all of a sudden we are just hyper-casual no matter what. Flip-flops to a business meeting, uh, your, your pajamas to school drop-off. And look, I have three children. Nobody is as aware of how difficult it is to get your kids out the door in the morning as I am. But it's not that hard to throw on a pair of jeans. You know, even even a pair of... Or just a really long coat if you who cares what you got underneath, yeah, right? Yeah, go ahead and get yourself a good bathrobe, you know? <laughs> even the flashers had big, yeah, <laughs> big yeah, coats. Yeah, go, go ahead, go to, splurge on a London Fog trench coat. <laughs> Wear that in the line. I don't oh. care how hot it is. If you're in Phoenix, Arizona in the summer, either, you know, put appropriate clothing on or break out the London Fog. Yeah. The other piece I wanted to share with you before we get to Gibbs' interview with Cal Newport uh, is from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and they wanted to see... Everybody's talking about clutter now, right? So Marie Kondo does this, you know, yep. uh, cleaning up with Marie, whoever it is. And on this Netflix. is all about cl- clutter too. Yeah, and maybe that maybe she's the one that's created the problem at the schools. Maybe people are just they've given away so much of their stuff that was clutter they don't have any clothes left. <laughs> anyway, that probably isn't it. Uh, <laughs> These short shorts are the only thing that bring me joy. So uh, now they're saying, right, it, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, that, that they can prove that clutter actually messes with our uh, mental health. Oh, it's so true. So what they did was uh, the, uh, researchers from USC asked families to record videos while they were touring their own homes and discussing their belongings and what those belongings meant to them. Uh, and they were able to measure their hormone levels. Uh, they also analyzed the videos and looked for language specific to clutter and unfinished home products and things. So the people who perceived their homes as cluttered, they had high dangerous, unhealthy levels of the stress hormone cortisol, and they felt more stressed as the day went on. People who didn't perceive yeah. their homes as cluttered, they had a significant dropping. Now, you don't want – cortisol is great for waking you up in the morning. That's how you wake up. Right. But if you have that all day, then you have chronic stress. You have chronic stress. You have, you have, it thins your heart muscles. It adds belly fat to your, to your body. It is, you, you don't want it coursing through your veins all the time. It is, it's absolutely true. And, I, and, and look, we, I, think, I think one of the reasons why digital minimalism and minimalism in general is trending so much right now is that we have so much access to stuff. You know, most, most people in the Western world can get access to very cheap, even fashionable cheap clothing very easily. We have this, like, this ability that we have, we, stuff comes to our door within two days. And, and what we've done is, instead of getting stuff that we really need and want, we end up just getting stuff, and our whole house is full of it. I mean, uh, we, we talk about how we're like goldfish. We'll just fill the size of our bowl. Yeah, sure. You know, so I, our house, we, we move from one house to another, and all of a sudden, we just keep adding more stuff to it, you know? Yeah, and and it's, yeah. it's, a real, it's a real shame, and it's a problem that all of us have. And, like, you know, our bedroom, when we have people over, we end up stuffing stuff in our bedroom mm-hmm. because it's the one room people don't go into. So now our bedroom is just cluttered, and it's, right. it really messes with sleep. It's, yeah, it's oh, terrible. Yeah. It, it is terrible. Hey, listen, before we get to uh, Gibbs' interview with Cal Newport, I just want to tell you that uh, we're sort of like uh, we're sort of like NPR, like uh, like PBS, where we 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 get offered uh, commercials for the show, certain commercials, but we we are very careful with what we put on the air uh, on the on the radio show, but also on the on on the podcast. So if you want Gib to continue doing these great interviews, the thing to do is to share them, and I mean even while you're listening to the podcast, right? That app will still work while you go and share it, and so we really w- w- would love for you to do that. So that we can, because uh, when we get more listeners, right, there are more people like Cal Newport come and say, well, i got to be on Gibbs' podcast. Yeah. Well, yeah, so. yeah. We've been getting great guests, and you guys have been, and I love the response. Thank you guys. Don't forget to shout us out on, on social media. Here, of course, is, uh, is Cal Newport. I'm really excited about this. I think you all need to hear it. Dr. Cal Newport, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. We really appreciate the time. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Okay, so I want, I want to get right into it. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of deep work. Uh, John and I both read the book and, and, and some of the principles there, we, we really, we're not great at striving it, uh, at achieving it, but we strive to Im, Im, implement a lot of those principles. Um, now you, your new book, digital minimalism, I guess I, I want to get into it. I have, I have some preconceived notions about what I think it is, but what, why, what is the book and why, what is digital minimalism and why did you feel the need to write the book? Well, so as you mentioned, Back in 2016, I had this other book out called Deep Work, which really was about unintentional consequences of technology in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So when I was out there on the road talking about this book, one of the pieces of feedback I kept getting from readers is, okay, maybe I buy this premise, maybe I don't, but what about the impact of technologies in our personal lives? 
And I began to pick up that there had been this shift that, that happened sometime, I would say, early 2017, late 2016, where people changed from telling self-deprecating jokes about how much they use their phone into actually being distressed and right. feeling that there was something actually wrong going on in their life outside of work in terms of what was going on with this technology. It wasn't really about usefulness. I mean, the argument is not, is Facebook useless or is there something useful right, on Facebook? Right. Are you getting some value out of Twitter or is Twitter cigarettes? It's not that. It was really more autonomy that seemed to be the issue, that people felt like they were looking at these screens more than they knew was useful, right. more than they knew was healthy, uh, to the exclusion of things that they knew were more important. And so mm -hmm. the idea is, why was this happening? What could they do about it? And, and the thing that seemed to be clear was that tips weren't working. They had all read the same articles about turning off their notifications. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they had all read the same <laughs> articles about the detox weekend, and, yeah. and it wasn't working. And so my response to it is that what we need is a philosophy, something that's based in your values, something that you can believe in, and something that makes very clear this is how you should engage with your digital life. Just like in health and fitness, you might have a philosophy like paleo or vegan. It's mm -hmm. more than just tips. It's like, this is how you should engage with food in your life. And that tends to work a lot better than just, you know, eat less, move more. And right. so digital <laughs> minimalism is one such philosophy. It's my tip to have a much stronger response to the issue that I think people are increasingly feeling. And I, and I, I happen to agree with them. I mean, we've, uh, irrespective of, of getting your book and, and of, uh, but, but even before, before you and I talked about talking, we, I, I've noticed a big trend in people really being active in trying to get rid of it. We talk about some great apps all the time. There's an app called Forest. We talk about it on the air all the time where you uh, plant a digital tree. Now, it's it's not really digital minimalism because you're you're just going into another app in order to get you out of other apps, but it does break it up a bit. It plants a digital tree while the app is open and you're supposed to be doing deep work so that you can't, if you use any other app, it kills the tree as it's growing. So you set a timer. That's how Forest works. But now the iPhone has built into it uh, this amazing, amazing time tracker, which for me is it sort of create it gamifies it. So I get the little notification on Sunday afternoon that like last week you used your phone 14% less than you did the week before. That's great. Like that, that's motivating for me to to just keep my phone down and not stare at it blindly because I'm going to get that notification that tells me how much I, I read it the week. But do you feel like those some of those apps are are an indication of of this changing philosophy? I think about those apps, the new tools that are built into uh, smartphones. This is often grouped under the umbrella of digital wellness, mm -hmm. which is let's use digital tools to try <laughs> to make us more healthy in our relationship with digital life. And yeah. I don't think that they're uh, bad by themselves, but I don't think by themselves they're going to actually get us to the solution. Mm -hmm. So what's radical about digital minimalism is it says, stop trying to tweak and fix what you're already doing. Instead, wipe the slate completely clean. Mm. Get rid of all this clutter in your digital life, all the stuff you signed up for randomly or apps you downloaded while bored one day five years right, ago. Right. Clean it all out and build the whole thing back up from scratch. Just putting in the things that you decide are really important and are going to really serve things that are very important for you. So instead of trying to fix from the top down what you the mess you already have in your digital life, digital minimalists say, no, I'm going to I guess start from scratch. I'm cleaning all this junk out of my house. and I'm only going to bring back in, metaphorically speaking, the things that are really, really important to me. And I'm convinced that this is much more effective. When you start from scratch you end up in a much more powerful place than when you try to just shuffle around with drawers you're keeping the junk in. Right. Like 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 moving. Moving is such a great uh, way of getting you to get rid of stuff in your house because you go through literally everything to pack it away and you decide what's worth moving. So right. that, yeah, it's, it's almost like that. I, I've done that before when I get a new phone. Instead of backing it up from a previous profile and putting all the same apps on, I've done it. I've done um, uh, I've. I've like I've just started from scratch and decide and created a whole new profile and added in apps as I've wanted them. But eventually, I get back to an unbelievably cluttered phone where I have just pages and pages of apps that I never ever look at. So how do you take how do you take that what I'm assuming you'll you'll call the digital detox into a philosophy? Well, exactly. So uh, the issue with a just a detox by itself is it just says oh you should take a break. Mm -hmm. And if you take a break, you'll feel better. Mm -hmm. But then in the digital context, for whatever reason, people then go back to exactly what they were doing before. Yeah. 
Now, I mean, I'm not, for example, a substance abuse expert, but I'm pretty sure that the other places where we use detoxes, the idea is not you step away from your drug addiction for three months and then go back to using it again. You haven't haven't solved the problem that drove you to the point where you need the detox in the first place. So where the philosophy solves things is that you don't just clear things out of your life, which is what I, you know, I recommend you do this 30 day process. I call it a declutter instead of a detox, because really it's about cleaning the junk out. The key is the reintroduction rules. So if you're a digital minimalist, you don't let a digital tool back into your personal life unless you can make a case that this is the best way to support something that you Mm. deeply value. Mm. So you really raise the bar. So if you don't have that, what you fall back onto is maximalism, which is what most people do by default, which is if I could think of any benefit or any convenience I might get from downloading this app or sign up for the service, that's justification to do it. Mm -hmm. But we have thinking that goes back all the way uh, to antiquity that tells us that maximalism doesn't work. Focusing on a small number of things that are very, very valuable while excluding things that might bring you a small amount of value, you actually end up better off. Less is more. That's minimalism encapsulated. And and just I mean look I, I, at the risk of sounding ignorant because I absolutely believe that we need this. Why why does it matter on our phones? Like why does that? Like because wh- why are we being controlled by this? And why why does carrying around eighty extra apps that I never open matter? Well, there's a cost to the clutter, right? So when you have the the clutter of eighty different things that is each pulling at your time and attention most of which that have been engineered by very smart people to do this very effectively. Mm. So using very powerful psychological tricks to essentially exploit psychological vulnerabilities to try to get you to click back on these things. What happens is, is you get this cluttered sense of constant pull that takes you away from things that's more important to you, that keeps you away from your values. The opportunity cost of this is that your life is severely impoverished. And this is one of the the things that digital minimalists often report after making their transition to minimalism is that when they regain back so much time and attention that they Mm. didn't realize that they were essentially just uh, frittering away to all these various apps and services and that they're able to focus and consolidate that on a small number of things that they really care about that they spend the whole evening with their kids, not kind of with their kids, but also kind of yeah. looking at three different browser tabs. Yes. They feel a lot better. So there's, this is one of the key ideas of, of uh, minimalism is that there's a cost to the clutter. We, we focus on the little bits of value that each of the things clogging up our house brings us, but the, the psychological cost to be a hoarder is way worse than the sub of all that value. Clutter itself is costly. And and that's and, and that's I think what you what you bring up there right is that what we have done is we've taken these digital relationships and our relationships to our, to our digital life and we've we've blocked the relationships that are literally right in front of us and to our to our detriment. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other things we're we're blocking as well that I discovered when I really got deep into this is that we've allowed the digital stream, so this stream of algorithmically selected low quality but irresistible distraction yes. that's buzzing at us from our oh, screen. Oh, the way you say that, it just I just I feel like I'm in a, you know, a Baptist revival tent right now, like preach it. Yes. Preach it. Exactly. Well, I know everyone understands it now. This is the shift that's happened the last year or two, but this stream, what one of the things I discovered when I I was really working on this book and working with a lot of people to actually go through this process. Uh, they were surprised to realize the degree to which they had allowed the stream to push out of their life the sort of leisure activities that used to be a real source of meeting. So the the pickup basketball team, the community organizations, the skilled hobbies, even the reading of physical books, the stream had just nudged this stuff bit by bit out of their life. They didn't realize it. They look up four years later and all of their leisure time is being filled doing this low quality activity. Yeah. And that's impoverishing the quality they get out of their life. So one of the biggest pieces of feedback I got when I ran uh, 1,600 people through this minimalism declutter process, one of the biggest pieces of feedback I got from that experiment was they had forgotten how much they used to enjoy high-quality leisure activities, and they were surprised by how much more enjoyable their life was when they were now refilling their free time with things that were hard but rewarding. And just think how good all the extra hiking will look on your Instagram page. I kid. Um, <laughs> you talk, I look, I, that, that, all, that all just, it, it fills me with, it fills me with this like weird, deep yearning right now for that, to get that stuff back. Cause I, one of the things I did recently is I, I deleted, uh, the Facebook app for my phone and for like, uh, I mean, this was, this was months ago and I, and I've started doing it with Instagram, but Instagram's harder cause you can't do it on, on your computer. Uh, but, but one of the things I've noticed is that for like the first couple of weeks I would reach for my phone 
to mindlessly check Facebook. And even though it wasn't on there, so I reached for it to go do it. And then obviously, because it wasn't on there, we go, oh, right. And I would put my phone back down. Um, and that to me is just an absolute sign of, of the subconscious addiction you're talking about. Oh, it's so powerful. Now, a lot of this addictive uh, properties of, let's say, social media, a lot of this is very engineered, which is right. which is worth emphasizing. I mean, essentially what happened with the major social media platforms is they got to a point where they needed to figure out how to significantly boost their revenue because their investors, their early stage investors said, hey, guys, where's our 100 time return on the investment, right? We're getting right. a little bit antsy here. So right. that meant they need a big IPO. It needed a lot of revenue. And so they had to figure out how are we going to triple or quadruple our revenue? And what they figured out is, okay, if we shift the mobile, we shift the experience to the mobile, we can now engineer these things so that people will use it a lot more. You, you might forget, I mean, this was a while back before the transition happened, but the way that we used to interact with, let's say, Facebook back before it was mobile, it was a much slower experience right. because you really didn't update your profile all that often. So if you logged onto the website and checked what your friends were up to in the morning, there was no reason to log on again that day. Right. Like nothing else. Nothing was going to change, right? right. You know, no one's going to go on a vacation. It was a pretty slow media. People usually use it to discover things and occasionally get some updates. That wasn't generating enough revenue. So when they went mobile, that's when they introduced things that we now take for granted but are actually quite arbitrary, like having a like button. Mm -hmm. So now when you click on that app, it's not just, oh, what are my friends up to? You could have this steady stream of information about people clicking like on stuff that you've posted. And those are little so dopamine bursts in your brain. It's a little burst. And not, so now you're getting a lot richer stream of rewards. Same thing with the, the auto-tagging of photos that Instagram worked on. It cost a lot of money to figure out how to solve that problem. They did it because every time they could tag a photo, you get a little social approval indicator. Yeah. You know, Cal tagged you in a photo. So they wanted to make the stream of these social approval indicators very rich. And then they also wanted to make sure that they were delivered in an intermittent fashion. So sometimes you click that little box on the phone and there's some social approval indicators. Hey, five people like you and sometimes there's not mm -hmm. uh, they took this idea from las vegas casino gambling consultants who took it from a uh, behavioral psychology experiment in the 1970s that when you have intermittent reinforcement it hijacks the dopamine system and you become compulsive you have to keep pulling that virtual lever uh, so all of this was engineered when they did the shift the mobile and this idea that you would click on, let's say, Facebook 100, 150 times during the day yeah. would have been baffling to the 2006 version of the Facebook user. And mm -hmm. it was entirely engineered. It had nothing to do with the fundamental experience that this platform was supposed to offer. It was entirely engineered because they needed user engagement minutes to be much larger so that their IPO wouldn't flop. And so I, it's worth mentioning that backstory so that we don't forget the degree to which what we're doing and we feel that addictive pull is not just a failure of willpower. Like, I don't know, I guess I just like stupid stuff. And it's not just uh, an incidental emergent property of the internet. Mm. It was a business. And there's nothing about it that's fundamental to socializing or expressing yourself on the internet. Oh, gosh. I just, I, I feel like this aching pain in my heart from this conversation right now. And, I, and, and the, the irony is that these are tools that we spend literally hundreds of dollars on. Uh, and then we fill up with this stuff that controls our lives in ways that we don't want it to be controlled. And, and uh, yeah, so th this is and, and you said you in your book, you talk about how this version of the smartphone, wh where we are now is is different from Steve Jobs original vision for the iPhone. And, and, and for, how, how is that? How is that the case? I mean, the original vision that Steve Jobs had for the iPhone, and I went back and talked to the original development head for the iPhone project leading up to its announcement in 2007 that confirmed this. The original vision Jobs had which is the same type of vision he always had, which is a minimalist one, which is, let me look at something that people already really value and find a way to make that experience even better. Mm. That's what Jobs wanted to do. Let me take things that people love and then give them an experience around that thing that blows their mind. So the original iPhone was about two things. Phone calls and music. Mm -hmm. People love talking to each other on the phone. It had been that way for about a century. It was very important. And people love listening to music. And Jobs, of course, was a huge music fan and, and loved that. And so that's what the iPhone was supposed to be. We forget now. But if you think back, if you're able to remember when the iPhone is first announced, the way it was presented is, hey, guys, we have great news. You no longer have to carry a separate iPhone and a cell phone. Right. They're going to be integrated. It's one device and the music will stop if a call comes in and then restart again. Right. If you look at the, the original keynote address where Jobs introduces the iPhone in 2007. It's a phone. It's an it's iPod. Phone, it's an it's internet an connectivity device. That was the weird one. 
Yeah, and if, so I timed it. It takes 33 minutes before he gets into any of the details of the internet connectivity device, right? Uh -huh. he, the first 33 minutes is the phone features and the iPod features. Uh, he says, this is the best iPod and we ever made. visual voicemail. I got to remind everybody, visual voicemail was a killer app when they yes. first launched the iPhone. That's, that's the thing that we all take for granted now where you, you see a list of voicemails that you can click on and listen to it, not having to listen to all your voicemails at once. That was, was huge. that was huge. Jobs huge. had to basically break the arm of AT&T executives to get him to open up the system. He literally says the killer app is making phone calls, right? And the yeah. crowd goes crazy. There was no app store. Yeah. Jobs no, did I not that. trust. He did not trust. He didn't want third-party people putting their ugly apps on the phone <laughs> that weren't going to use it in the best way. There was no app store. This idea that you would look at, he didn't want to change the way that you behaved. He wanted to take the things you're already doing and make that experience so you loved it. Yeah. Wanted, the idea that you would look at your iPhone 150 times a day, I mean, I'm convinced that that would be something that, that Jobs would have been very unhappy about. Like, that was not the idea. He's not trying to change you into, into these agents that just sit there typing your data yeah. <laughs> into the databases of attention economy companies. He was like, I want, the, I want you to be able to swipe the album covers and they'll move with momentum, right? I mean, yeah. that's beautiful, right? Yeah. You're already listening to music, but let's make it even better. And so Jobs was a bit of list. Uh, and so he wanted to take things that people really loved and focus and say, how can we make those things even better? And so I think we actually have a lot to learn from the way that Jobs thought about technology back in those years. Yeah. And, 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 and just, and applying that to how we approach our phones now, like it does this really like your, your, like your fundamental concept does, does this add a proportionate amount of value to my life or is it a disproportionately small amount? Yeah, and even if it does uh, bring value, something that digital minimalists are very careful about is asking, okay, well, what's the best way to use this app or service to extract a value and minimize the cost? Which is why digital minimalists, even those who use various social media platforms for specific reasons, would never have them on their phone. Because that puts the cost to benefit ratio way in the favor of mm. the company. Because once it's on your phone, it's engineered for you to use compulsively. Right. And 99% of the things that people do on social media that gives them real value is something that you could probably do twice a week for 15 minutes on your desktop or laptop. You don't right. need it while you're right. waiting in line. And so digital minimalists, for example, artists, I, I heard from a lot of minimalist artists uh, who use Instagram because it's an inspiration source. There's a lot of artists that show their work on yeah, Instagram. Totally. And if, you're, if you're an avant-garde artist, it's very important for you to see inspiration. Totally. But the, the, Digital minimalist artists figured out pretty clearly, they all seem to arrive at the same uh, conclusion independently, is, well, don't have it on your phone because it is just a crutch that's taking your time away from actually doing art. They carefully curate their followers down to usually five to ten artists they really admire, like once a week. Once a week, they go on their computer and they go through it for that dose of inspiration. So mm. they're getting 99% of the value and leaving behind 99% of the cost of their life uh, that they would have incurred if they kept this thing on their phone and just without restriction, obsessively clicked it. Okay. I mean, all right. So I am, I mean, look, I, if, if you're listening right now and you're not sold on this, I don't know what else to tell you, but I am sold on the idea that I need this. What is, what are the first steps I take in order to change my behavior pattern? Because like you said, it's not necessarily a willpower issue. It's not necessarily a laziness issue. It's that we have been conditioned by very smart behavioral psychologists to, to behave like this. So how do we break out of their, their uh, metaphysical prison? So I have the, the timid response and the strong response, right? So <laughs> I'll give you both. So the strong response, the way to really treat this problem is I, I do recommend doing what I call a digital declutter, which is 30 days. You step away from any technology in your personal life that you could step away with without it causing a lot of trouble, right? So I don't want you to, to ignore your child trying to text you to say, I need to get picked up from school, right. but anything you could step away from, some social media, online news, video games, streaming wow. media. Wow. Everything. It's scary, right? I mean, uh, but you, everything. And when I, when I put this call out to my readers who wants to try this, and I thought 50 people would say yes and 1,600 signed up for instead, I know there's a hunger out there. Oh, it's, uh, it's real. I mean, look, I'm, scary. I'm champing at the bit here. Yeah. So, so the declutter 30 days. So what do you do during that 30 days? Well, the first two weeks will be a bit of a detox experience. Uh, my readers report one to two weeks is how long it takes to lose that itch 
to mm. compulsively hit. But that's not all you're supposed to do. You take those 30 days, you get back in touch with what do I really care about? What do I actually want to be spending time on in my life? You clarify that. We don't do enough of that type of self-reflection and our phone sort of prevents us from doing that type of self-reflection. You also start experimenting again with analog leisure activities, the stuff you forgot. Right. Then at the end of the 30 days, you're not going to just take everything and put it back in your life. You imagine that you're starting from a blank slate. So before you add anything digital back into your personal life, it has to follow, uh, pass the test. Is this the best way to use technology to serve something that I really value? If it is, okay, you can let it back in with some clear rules about how you're going to use it. But if it's not, you say, I'm okay ignoring that, mm. even if I'm missing out on some value or conveniences. So you end up at the end of the declutter, almost certainly with a much more intentional, much more selective digital life. Uh, you'll probably spend much less time looking at your screen than people you know, but you're not ignoring technology. In fact, you're probably going to end up getting more value out of technology than the people you know as well, right. because you're being so careful about not just what you use, but how you use it. So, I mean, if you want to do the rip the bandaid off approach, I have some smaller things to suggest, but that's the big thing. That's right. the thing that seems to really be helping people. And now, I mean, okay. So, so you're talking about, about really putting, putting technology aside. If you can, does it, how, how granular are we getting here? Like, am I, should I not take uh, music to the gym? In, yeah. With headphones so, or, or, or what? Yeah. Different people do different things. Um, so you, a lot of people, do listen to music still when they do the declutter podcast was a big debate. You know, half the people came down on uh, no, no podcast. The other half came down on uh, podcast. You know, that's how I, I'm bored of my commute and I'm a little bit agnostic on that. Uh, uh, no, so is, you're not at you. You're pro podcast, obviously, because we're talking well, on a I, podcast I, right now. <laughs> I'm so confident that everyone will add that back to their life because it's so <laughs> undeniably valuable that what's the worry uh, so it, it, some of this is bespoke. Like, for example, I hadn't really thought about video games, mm. but a lot of especially young male readers got back to me and said, no, you don't understand. That needs to be on this list. That's a big deal. So I said, OK, uh, I hadn't really thought about streaming media like Netflix because I don't know. I have three young kids. I just don't have a lot of time to watch TV. Right, right. But people came back and said, I'm, I'm watching this compulsively. That needs to be on the list. So it, mm. it could get a little bit uh, not complicated. I just think bespoke. Right. So you think, is this something that I. I really need, or is it a technology that I'm using optionally? Mm -hmm. And on the fridges, you could make your own decision. I don't think, for example, however you fall on, do I bring music to the gym or not? Either way you fall is probably not going to throw this experiment off. Right. On the other hand, if you say, well, I, I think I should still just use Facebook, then probably you're not being strong enough. Right, right. I mean, and I also feel like with like digital streaming, like maybe watching it on my television is different from having the apps on my phone, right? Right. Like there, some, I, I feel like there's some sort of psychological difference of, okay, I'm intentionally sitting down uh, at the end of a day to watch a show, even as, as passive as that is, it's still more intentional than throwing a show on my phone on Netflix while I'm shaving, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people ha came up with this rule, which I thought was clever, which is I'm allowed to watch something streaming if I'm doing it with at least one other person. Oh, I was like, interesting. oh that's a clever hack. That actually, that actually worked well for a lot of people. I wonder if that works for alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> you, you suddenly become very friendly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's okay. All right. So we, we do the digital declutter and you, and, and, and that mindset again is, is you look at what you have or what you're adding to your back into your phone and does it, does it provide that sort of value, right? Con I mean, yeah. that's, just, that, that's just the constant answer. So like I have things, you know, you talk about, about not, not texting as much. And, and I almost feel like in this day and age, texting used to be the really bad one. I feel like texting has moved down the list uh, as something that's, that's almost uh, a better way of communicating than some of these other things. Because I have like, I'll give you an example. I have a group of guys that I grew up with we are we're all from uh, we're all from the same from LA and we all follow LA sports very closely and we talk about it literally constantly and and because of that i am in touch with guys that i went to kindergarten and high school with uh, that i wouldn't necessarily be we all have our own lives now we have you know we have families and jobs that are not that are no longer convergent and but this keeps us together and because of it we get together more often and and i happen to love that but the texting, would that be considered a, a digital problem? So the way I talk about texting in the book is that the issue when it comes to social life with these technologies is that non-analog digital interaction like texting or comments or likes on social media, which I put in the roughly the same category, 
don't scratch the same itch for our brain as actual analog interaction, right. like talking on a phone or being in person where there's nuance and, and back and forth and you can tell the tone of voice or, or see body language. We've had a lot of psychologists on the show say the same thing, that we are exactly. creating this sort of weird ersatz interaction that, that scratches the itch, but not really. It doesn't really. And this is why we're getting these paradoxical findings in the research literature that people who use social media more feel more lonely. Yeah. And what they're realizing is, okay, it's not that what they're doing on the social media platform makes them lonely. It's because they're using so much social media, they think they don't have to do the real world stuff. And the social media just does not scratch the same yeah. as the real world stuff. And that's why they end up lonely. So where I fall down on this issue is that uh, to try to change your mindset, not that text messaging or social media interaction is by itself bad, but that you shouldn't allow your mind to count it as interaction. So if you're, I mean, all guys I know have a group of friends for when they were growing up that they talked to on text messages. I certainly yeah. do as well. Yeah. Uh, but if that's the only way you're interacting with them, the psychology research would tell you, you should basically see that as I'm not socializing with those people anymore. Uh, so to the extent that you can use the text messaging or social media interactions to help set up real world interactions, that's where it's useful. So I, I push people to change their mindset about digital interactions, to move it more into the category of logistical, right? That these are great yeah. tools to help set up more real world interaction you might otherwise do, but the, the change the mental accounting ledger in your mind. So you don't think like, yeah, I'm in pretty good touch with John if all you've actually been doing was text messaging it because it's not serving the same function in terms of your brain, the way your brain is concerned. So that's what I push is it doesn't count as real-world socializing, but it can be a fantastic tool to help you keep more of that real-world socializing you'd otherwise be able to support. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, so I, I, I guess I, I mean, obviously the data is on your side, right? You're, you're the one that did the research. I, I, I guess I have to acquiesce, but I mean, anecdotally, I... I feel like there are, for example, I, I wouldn't, the, baseball is my number one sport. 162 regular season games. I follow the Dodgers. They play deep into the postseason lately. So that's a lot of nights of, the, of them being on. I would never in my most minimalist life be able to get in touch with and see those, the, that group of guys for most of those Dodger games. But we text for almost every single one some sort of interesting update uh, in the group. And it do, I, I really do feel, even though I hear what you're saying, it's not the same, it does keep us connected in that time. You know what I mean? Right. And I, and I value that. And, I, and, and we, we make jokes about each other. And, 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 and we, so for me, that is very valuable socially. Um, and, and, and we do still get together, obviously. But I just, I, 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 anecdotally, I don't, I'm not 100% sold on this idea that, that's, that, that social interaction over text is not valuable. Well, I mean, as long as those text messages are all of you agreed that uh, the Dodgers need to stay far away from Bryce Harper and let him come back to my Washington Nationals, then, <laughs> then I completely, I completely agree with the you. The advanced stats um, on Harper are not very good. You can have him. <laughs> you don't or like not, or not, propor not proportionate with the amount of money he's asking for. That's right. 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 Well, you, yeah. Uh, so uh, that point's taken, and and so it's interesting, right? I mean, these technologies like text. It, you have these interactions you wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, on the other hand, they don't serve nearly the same purpose as the real world interactions. And I think that's the complexity that we're in right now. Right. So, you know, for someone like you who say eh, during baseball games, I'm texting with my old friends who liked baseball. Uh, it's not taking you, as you said, that's not taking you away from, you know, I would have otherwise been at the local pub or talking to someone in person right. because you're probably going to be listening to that game anyways. The literature would say, okay, net, there's not a net loss there. Mm -hmm. Where it gets problematic, I think, is where this is, you know, the younger you are, the more likely this is to happen is where that expands. And now you say, well, why, like with teenagers today, well, why would I even bother tried to go to the party, right? I could just sit in my room and keep these group texts going. Right. Why would I put right. myself out there right. at you know a bar when I could just be doing these Snapchats back and forth? So, I mean, I think people of a certain age are usually a little bit better at, at balancing these two things. And maybe they get some injections of conversation, and, but they also realize, hey, when I see these people in person, it's even more meaningful, yeah. and that's fine. The danger is when you actually allow it to expand to the point where you say, well, this this counts as my social life. Yeah. And that's where we start to see the actual measurable psychological impacts uh, start to add up. And I, I feel like it's even worse for adolescents in that sense, right? What you just described, because in my adolescence, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit older than, than most people in my generation. So I, I grew up in high school, not every, like nobody had a cell phone. 
And then in college, people started to get a cell phone. When I, and what I liked about that, what, what, what I realized about that in, in reflecting is, one, it taught me uh, a lot about how to live without the technology. So like I kind of learned the technology as it became available, as opposed to it just being ubiquitous in my childhood. But the other thing you just described, there's a certain risk involved, a certain social risk in being physically present somewhere, right? It's, 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 it's um, hardwired into our brain from, you know, from, from millennia. So why would I take the risk if I had another way of scratching the itch? Like part of adolescence is learning when to sort of risk, uh, risk failure in social interactions because the net value is that's the only way to get social interaction is to sometimes you have egg on your face, to be embarrassed sometimes. And it ends up being what creates the longest term social uh, connections with those people. But I feel like with, with these text message groups and with social media, Kids now, the kids these days, kids these days are able to have these low value social interactions, but never actually have that um, risk reward situation in real life. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, one of the things that we've learned, I think, in recent years for both the neuroscience, psychology and sociological research is that socializing is really, really hard. And right. the way that, we're set up. That's what I mean with, in terms of risk. Yes, keep going. Yeah. But also, it's really difficult to get right, right? Uh, we, we take for granted, oh, yeah, yeah, you socialize, you know how to do small talk with someone. But, but as soon as you encounter someone who has, let's say, even a relatively small impairment, let's say mm-hmm. neurological impairment that affects how they socialize, it, it strikes you as very, very unusual. And when you see that, it helps emphasize actually how subtle the dance is mm-hmm. of interacting back and forth with a human. So it requires lots of practice. Our, right. That's why we have exactly. this drive to socialize is because we've evolved to get really good at this skill. So we have this drive to socialize, a drive that's hijacked by these by these digital tools. But I'm with you. I'm 36. So my high school years were I mean, the whole thing at high school was try to navigate, okay, there's a party going on. Right, <laughs> okay. right. Do we, are we cool? Are, who's, what's the exact peer group? Are we cool enough for this? I think we are. Okay, it's gonna be really difficult when we get there. Mm-hmm. Let's kind of play it cool. We got to right. read the room. But that's got to be, you know, a master class in reading body language and social cues and try to understand uh, social standings. And we need that. And then we take for granted now that we're 30s or 40s. Like, I know how to talk to someone, and it's fine. And this is an issue. The kids these days that need to get off my lawn. <laughs> I mean, part <laughs> of the issue is if you don't do this practice, if you're not sweating it in the car before deciding, like, whether we should walk in the front or back door of this high school party, if you're not doing that, Sherry Turkle documents this in her book, Reclaiming Conversation. If you're not doing that, you're really bad at social interaction. So Sherry Mm -hmm. Turkle, who's this MIT sociologist who studies this, talks about how now people in their 20s or younger 20s who went through these childhoods without that type of social practice, they're having such a hard time in the workplace. I mean, it's just really uncomfortable. They don't know how to sit down and have a conversation like with a boss. And so this is a little bit of a fist shaking. I mean, I I feel like I'm young enough that it's not at the worst of the curmudgeonliness, but it gets at a bigger point, which is uh, we've been wired for millennia to be social creatures in very careful, well-balanced ways. So we should be very wary when just 10 years ago, some kids in hoodies in a Silicon Valley incubator said, let's just let's just rewire, let's mess this whole thing up. Let's right, just change right, the way right. we socialize. Like, that's, that probably wasn't going to go well. Yeah. Just like when we said, hey, we could build food better using factories in the mid 20th century, everyone got obese, right? right? Because we'd had these bodies that had been engineered to eat in a different environment for thousands of years. Yeah. So we're having, cog- this is essentially like social obesity. When you mess around with these systems- Ooh, I love that term. Way. I love that term. I don't want that to get lost. This is essentially Trip. social obesity. It's low yeah. nutritional value, high caloric. And yes, I love that. Sorry, keep going. I just, I, I want Well, but, but the, the underlying point being that we just have to be very wary about anything that we've been evolved for and is tied to really strong drive. So we're talking about food, socialization, or sex, basically those three things, those really strong drives that have been evolved in a very subtle mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. If you just start messing around with any of those drives, like, hey, let's just try this or throw in this technology or completely change things, it always causes problems. It's very hard to get right. And so we should have been a lot more wary in the early 2000s when we saw the, the Web 2.0 movement give way to these giant social media platforms. Right. But at the time, we were just so excited. You know, Investors were so excited that we were coming out of the original dot-com crash and that, okay, maybe maybe our stock prices could go back up again, uh, that we were just like, okay, it's all gifts from the nerd gods. It's fine. It's fine. But we should have been more wary because it's messing with our social life in the same way that Oreos was messing with our metabolic system. And we should have expected something like that to happen. 
Yeah, th- thankfully this episode is not brought to you by uh, Nabisco Oreos. Um, <laughs> but th- so uh, this is you just said much more eloquently what I was trying to say about risk in terms of like in terms of that need to do the dance and need to practice the dance and fail at the dance over and over again in order to get it right. And when these kids with their clothes and their hair they get into the workplace and they have no idea how to do any of that stuff, it becomes glaring. And we are in this position where we kind of have to undo it. What if we don't undo it? What if we just accept that people, this is how people interact from now on? What are the consequences of our society, to our society? It, yeah, it's not going to be good. I mean, it's not, you, you have to imagine, I mean, there, a, a few things are going to happen. One, we're seeing already, uh, you get a loss of empathy. Like the more you move to digital interaction, mm. and then the more you allow algorithms to mediate, okay, what you look at and what you're interacting about. Right. And then when you allow those algorithms, and I, I'm a computer scientist who studies algorithms, so sort of, I, I know what's going on here. When you, when you have the objective function that you're optimized with these algorithms being engagement. So whatever, just figure out, try things, figure out what keeps people looking at the screen. What happens is, is that you begin to push people towards extremes and outrage, it turns out, for example, keeps people clicking yeah. and looking a lot longer than other things. So no one programmed that. Like no one sat down and said, outrage is the new whatever, the new black, let's, let's program for outrage. These are algorithms that were told essentially try things and statistically analyze it and see, does this create a little bit more engagement than this? Okay, let's bias towards that. Now let's do some more tests. And where these algorithms are pushing people is our, these, these digital lives that are increasingly pushing people to extremes and increasingly pushing people towards outrage. And so this actually starts to, to nibble away at the, the fabric of culture itself, right? Mm. So I think if we just say, let's allow these attention economy large platforms to basically be where we interact, how we get information, how we understand the world. Uh, it's pushing us in a bad direction. And I, I see it just getting worse and worse. But this is why I think, by the way, that I'm starting to sense this shift in the culture. Right. That it's not it's not going to keep going this way. I mean, two years ago, if I would go in the public, which I would, and say something bad about social media, people would either ridicule or aggressively attack me. Right. You know, now... People are, oh, that's, yeah, okay, good. Give me some advice. This sounds about right. right. So I, I think there's there's like an immune response happening in our culture right now. It started about two two years ago. Um, so I'm optimistic because I, it's bad. I, we, we, can't, we can't just outsource a lot of our humanity to this five or six oh. companies running these platforms. It's not working. It's, it's really making life, I mean, who's happier today than they were three years ago? Who feels like they're right. less anxious, right. feel better about their country? Who feels more empathetic? No one. We all know it's getting worse. We all know why. I don't, we, we really can't let that continue, but I don't think we're going to. Okay, that's another gem. So you have, you, have, you have two gems. One is social obesity, and the other is outsourcing our humanity. Those two lines, I mean, that right there, there's the titles for your next two books. Um, I absolutely, absolutely love them. And I, I think we're, we're all starting to experience this. Like you said, I mean, I, I had, a, I had an interaction recently too, where I was seeing a guy I went to high school with, um, and, uh, for the first time in, in a while, but because of, of, of Facebook in particular, and, and I knew his wife was pregnant with her second child. I'd seen pictures of the first, so that interaction was sort of deflated. Like it was really good to see him and it was really good to talk to him, but there were all these details that you would normally convey about your life that would sort of rebond us and, and, and re-ramp up the social situation that were kind of deflated that some would argue, you know, uh, we got all that stuff out of the way so we could get back to hanging out. But that, I missed that. I missed hearing his voice and hearing him talk about, you know, their, their expanding family and, and their life choices and, and, and getting to connect with him. Ironically, the guy works for Google, um, but, but the, uh, but it was a, it was like, it was a real eye opening event for me. Yeah. Well, one of the other issues that's embedded, I think in that story is that, you know, we've had this push in the last 10 years or so that one of the main benefits of these platforms is that they allow you to maintain these large numbers of weak tie relationships. So yeah. people that 15 years ago, you would never have any real way or interest in keeping up with now you can but the interesting thing about this claim is we take it as, oh, this is a great, this is a great benefit, but we have actually no reason to believe that this is important or that keeping in touch with weak tie friendships or weak tie connections in our social networks, that this at all is going to make our social life richer or make our life in general right. more satisfied and meaningful. It's, it's just something that we people never really did except for a few outliers. Like Bill Clinton famously had his boxes of index cards uh, when he was an early young politician in Arkansas yeah. where he kept track of every single person he ever interacted with. And, but he, outside would, of and a, he would call like five of them every day. He would just go back. They had a rotation. 
Yeah, but yeah. but he was the outlier, right? right. Uh, and, and so the idea that we all need to be like that, uh, it's not actually true, right? Uh, nothing bad happens when, I mean, because if you, let's say you don't use, like I've never had a social media account, right? So I've never been on Facebook. Uh, so there's a lot of people, Stop bragging. Weak, weak tie connections that I I don't have. A lot of people that I probably would have some connection to if I was on the platform that I don't, mm-hmm. but I can't see any way in which that's significantly impoverishing my life especially in a way that it would be worth, let's say, the time seek of having this thing pulling out my attention and, and the other types of, of negative benefits it brings around. Maybe you and don't so finish I, your PhD if that happens. Yeah, right? I mean, people, I, I get this a lot where people will say, well, I've, I've looked at, you know, I've thought about Twitter. If you're on Twitter, you know, you could have sold whatever, 3,000 more books or something through engagement. <laughs> I'm like, maybe, but I probably would have written half as many. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a hard, it, it's a hard calculus. It's a hard calculus to actually do. Mm. But so I'm, I'm out there saying, actually, we probably don't need as many friends. I mean, what we're evolved for is smaller numbers of friends, but much more intense relationships. Like, that's what our brain is craving. And mm. so not being in touch with the third grade friend through saying happy birthday on Facebook, you're probably not actually losing much. And if that right. stopped you from taking your really good friend down the street out to dinner again, then you're probably worse off. Yeah. Wow. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. and I think it's a great, a great place to finish. Uh, Cal Newport, thank you so much. I mean, you just, you just bragged about not being on social media. If people want to follow up with you, how can they follow up with you? Uh, so I'm a big fan of blogging. I'm a blog nerd. So at calnewport.com, you can see articles I've been writing about this stuff for over a decade. Uh, and you can also find out more about the books there as well. And I will put uh, links to that blog as well as links to his books, the one that I love, Deep Work, and the new one, Digital Minimalism, in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of this, Cal. And uh, one last thing. Uh, what is one singular habit that you recommend everybody that you do every day that you recommend people people start doing uh spend at least some time in which you're in a state of completely undistracted concentration just you thinking about something by yourself with nothing else pulling out your attention wow well there you go that's that's the that's the deep work method right there thanks thanks cal and uh thank you guys for listening you know, there are a few people, Gib, like, uh, like Cal and like you and like Ryan Holiday and some of our, our, our favorites who are like uh, great uh, jazz musicians to me where it's like they've dedicated their lives to, I'm going to do the research. I'm going to figure this yeah. out. I'm not just going to write something down and hope to get yeah. a book out and promote it. It's what, it's what Ryan Holiday calls, uh, in his book, calls perennial sellers, you know, something that's going to be around for a long time. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and Cal is, it really wants us all to create it. I mean, look, he, he does not want you to stop using your smartphone. He wants to give you control over your smartphone again. I mean, that's really important. This digital minimalism, this digital declutter, this digital detox, it's all about you being in control of how you use the tool, not being used by the tool. And, and, and it's something that we all need. And in fact, there's a, this is just a trend. This idea of minimalism is not, it's something that we as a society need right now. Uh, but once again, I just want to thank you guys all for listening. Uh, If you like our show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the most important single thing you can do for us is tell a friend. Share these interviews with a friend if you like them. It it really makes a difference for us, and we really appreciate it. If you want to follow up, we are at Facebook.com slash John Tesh. It's where we spend the most of our time. We do Facebook Lives, post videos, all kinds of articles relevant to the show. John is also on Twitter at John Tesh and on Instagram at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard. I am your host. Uh, you will find me at facebook.com slash gibgerard, at gibgerard on Instagram and Twitter. And I try to respond to every single comment, and I appreciate every single one. So when you guys tag me or at me or say something, I am always I always try to respond to it because I, I just appreciate it so much. And the more you do that, the better guests we can get and the more we can keep doing this. So thank you guys for listening. Okay, so David Michaels, a producer that I worked with for years on the Olympic Games, he wants to talk to you because there's nobody that can walk up a piece of music like you. (laughs)